Today on In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. Farag. Nehemiah 8.11 says, The joy of the Lord is my strength. And you think about what Nehemiah did. Against all odds, I mean impossible odds, but God, but God, he never gave up. He kept pressing on. And that was his secret. And that was the Apostle Paul's secret. And moreover, and more importantly, that was the Savior's secret. And that can be ours as well. You're listening to In Spirit and Truth, the radio ministry of Pastor J.D. Farag of Calvary Chapel, Kaneohe. Pastor J.D. is currently teaching through the book of 2 Corinthians. Spiritual stamina. Have you ever thought about this topic? Pastor J.D. explores Paul's secrets to spiritual stamina and how we can use these in our daily lives. Life can wear us down, discourage us, and cause us to want to give up. But God has claimed victory over this world and is our everlasting source of strength and joy. Don't give up. Press on. Now, be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of this broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. Now, here's Pastor J.D. with part two of his message, Spiritual Stamina. You gotta wonder. <laughs> I mean, this stamina, this, this endurance on the part of the Apostle Paul begs the question of both how and even why he was able to do this. What was his secret? In part, he answers this in his second epistle to Timothy, chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And then he says this, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also, and I love this, to all who have loved his appearing, longing for, even aching for, the appearing, the return of the Lord. I believe that this is one of the main reasons that Paul never burned out. This is the main reason to me that he never gave up. He lived his life in light of eternal life. He always had the eternal in view. His eyes fixed on that which was unseen, not that which was and is seen, not on the temporal, but on the eternal. And he longed for the Lord's return I think the most excited Christian, the most committed Christian, is the Christian who lives in this way, with their eyes on the Lord, their mind stayed on the Lord, their view is through the lens of eternal life. Everything is, if you will, run through that template, that grid of the eternal. What will this mean eternally? It's been said that soon one life will be passed, but it's only that which is done for Christ that will last. I suppose you could say that contrary to what Mark Twain said, Paul had become so heavenly minded that he was of such earthly good. Mark Twain, of course, 
said it the other way, that you can become so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Well, respectfully, I would beg to differ. I see it exactly the opposite. The more heavenly minded we are, the more earthly good will be. And as such, the Apostle Paul becomes for us an example to us, and in so doing, he shows us his secret, if you will, to his spiritual stamina. His first secret is in verse 9. He lived to please God and not man. One thing that could never be said of the Apostle Paul, and that was that he was a man pleaser. He was not a man pleaser. In verse 9, he tells them that in light of the new body awaiting us, we keep going, we keep pressing on, because we've made it our goal to please God. I imagine the Apostle Paul asking himself introspectively, is this pleasing in the sight of the Lord? If it's not pleasing in the sight of the Lord, I want nothing to do with it. If it pleases God, count me in. That was Paul. One of the most valuable lessons that I'm learning in my own personal walk with the Lord is that living your life to please man will eventually crush you. It will eventually crush you. If the goal of my life is to seek and win the approval of man, the applaud, the accolades of man, it's really only a matter of time before I'm crushed under the weight and the pressure of living that way. Paul, writing to the churches in Galatia, rhetorically asks in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, For do I now persuade men or God? You can almost detect a sanctified cynicism, as it's been called. Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. In other words, if I'm a man pleaser, I, I certainly cannot please God. It's, it's not both. It's either or. It's one or the other. And I would venture to say that proportionate to how I live my life to please God, I will proportionately displease man. And conversely, if I'm living my life to please man, to be a man pleaser, proportionately I will be displeasing to God because of it. There's an interesting account in the Gospel of John. It's in chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. We're told about those who believed in Jesus, but they would not publicly confess Jesus. And the reason is, is because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. It says, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. Which is interesting, because when you talk to non-believers, they'll almost without exception say, oh, I believe in God. To which I usually respond, well, um, so do the demons, and they tremble. That doesn't really work very well evangelically when I'm sharing the Lord. It kind of you know, is met with a stunned look, but it's true. The demons believe in God. That's not the challenge here. The challenge here 
is confessing him and publicly professing him. And we're told that they didn't do that. It says, but because of the Pharisees, they feared man. They did not confess him lest they be put out of the synagogue. And here's why. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. In Proverbs 29 Verse 25, it says, the fear of man brings a snare. It's a trap. You can be trapped in this man-pleasing fear of man. No Christian should ever live their lives in that place, that man-pleasing place. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. The second secret to Paul's spiritual stamina is that he kept his eyes on the prize. He didn't waver this way. He didn't waver that way. His eyes were fixed ahead on the prize that was set before him. In verse 10, he says that, I think by way of a reminder, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things we've done, whether it's good or bad. Now, it's important to understand that Paul is not referring to the great white throne judgment. There's going to be two judgment seats at the end. The great white throne judgment is for the non-believer, those who never accepted Jesus Christ and were never born again, and they will be recompensed according to that which they've done. What Paul's referring to here is the Bema Seat of Christ. It's very different. Picture in your mind's eye the Olympics. And you have the judges seated there judging so as to give the reward to the winner. This is what Paul has in mind. And the Corinthians would have known exactly what Paul was talking about. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, where he actually refers to the Olympic Games of that day. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? There's only one gold medal. There's only one crown. He says, run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now, They do it to obtain a perishable crown. And he's speaking of that perishable wreath that they would put over in the Olympics of that day, the winner. They would crown them with that perishable wreath. That's what they do it for. But Paul contrasts it and says, but we do it for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus, I fight. Not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul had spiritual stamina because he kept his eyes on the prize. The third reason Paul never burned out is because he knew what it is to fear the Lord. This is going to require us to really 
think through because it's not what it might seem at first read. In verse 11, he says, since they know what it is to fear the Lord. Notice he doesn't say, we fear the Lord. He doesn't say that. He says, we know what it is to fear the Lord. That changes everything. Changes the whole complexion of what he's saying. And he's saying, for this reason, we try to persuade others, hoping it is also plain to their conscience. Now, in order to better understand what Paul is saying here, I think it would be helpful to first understand what he's not saying. Paul is not saying that he fears the Lord will punish him if he doesn't remain faithful. That's not the fear of the Lord that he's talking about. He's talking about his fear that he would grieve the Lord in being unfaithful. Please don't miss this. This is huge. This is huge. Let me share how one commentator put it. It's very well said. The fear of the Lord motivated Paul in ministry. This was not fear that God would hurt him, but rather that he would hurt God. Think about that. You know that it's possible to grieve the heart of God? You know that it's possible to hurt the heart of Almighty God? And that's what Paul feared. He feared that he would hurt God through his sin and stupidity. Having been caught up into the third heaven, Paul knew that one day we will all stand before the lion of the tribe of Judah and see him in his majesty and love. Paul wanted to spare anyone from saying, why did I waste my time on that hobby? Spend my money on that insignificant trinket? Squander my energy so foolishly? Why did I take so lightly that which Jesus did for me on the cross of Calvary? One of the things that I'm learning, along with all the other things I'm learning, is that God ruins you for Himself. God ruins your plans for His. God breaks your will for His will. God ruins you for the call that He has on your life. And certainly this was true of the Apostle Paul. Now, it's when you view the fear of God through this lens, this lens of, I fear that I'm going to grieve the Lord. I fear that my life in some way is going to become displeasing in the sight of the Lord. And I don't want to do that to Him. I don't want to grieve Him. I don't want to displease Him. When you get into the Proverbs concerning the fear of the Lord, it comes into a clearer focus Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Think of fear as birthing wisdom. Fear is the commencement of that wisdom from above. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Think about that. Evil grieves the heart of Almighty God. And to fear the Lord and fear grieving the Lord is to hate evil. See how that 
comes into clearer focus now when you see it through the lens of that understanding of like the Apostle Paul knowing what it is to fear the Lord. It says pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. I hate. And arrogance. Think about this. God is humble. You ever thought of it like that? God is humble. He is humble and that's why he opposes the proud and knows them from afar off, the Proverbs says. A a humble God cannot be close to an arrogant man. And is it not true that the closer we walk with Jesus, the more we become like Jesus? And the more we become like Jesus, the more humble we become, because that's like Jesus. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Again, there's this template, if you will, there's this lens with which we view our Christian lives in this world. And that was the secret to Paul's spiritual stamina. The fourth and final one we'll look at today is in verses 12 and 13. And it's that Paul didn't take false accusations to heart. He didn't take criticism, unjust criticism, to heart. In verse 12 he says that they're not trying to commend themselves again. Rather he wants them to take pride in them so that they can answer their critics, which it appears there were many. In verse 13, he goes on to say that if we're out of our mind, uh, as it appears again, some were accusing them of, we're out of our mind for God. I think one has called it crazy for Christ. (laughs) Can I get a witness on being crazy for Christ? (laughs) I know that You think, some think, and we've been accused of being out of our minds. You know what? It's for God. If we're out of our minds, fine. It's as unto the Lord. (laughs) If it's that we're in our right minds, then it's for you. Now, Paul doesn't say this so that he can boast. He's telling them this so they can answer those who were criticizing them and accusing them. If you were to ask me what I thought was one of the fastest ways for Satan to take us down, this would have to be right at the top of the list. And it's so sad because the enemy is met with success in the life of a Christian by using those with a critical and accusatory spirit of antagonism. Over the years, I've personally witnessed this dynamic destroy families, marriages, and worse yet, church families. And I've seen it more times than I care to remember. Paul didn't take things to heart. You can't, especially in ministry. You won't survive long having a hypersensitive spirit. It's been said that if you're going to survive in ministry, whatever the call is that God has on your life, you have to have the heart of a child, 
the mind of a scholar, and the height of a rhinoceros. <laughs> you cannot have thin skin. You won't make it very far at all. I don't want to end on such a sour note, so I'll close with a quote from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cure. This book has been a tremendous resource and reference in my library. I oftentimes refer to it. Speaking of the Savior, Jones writes, how did Jesus do it? Think about that for a second. I mean, yes, the Apostle Paul finished well. He, he, he fought the good fight. He received the prize. He made it. He did it against unspeakable odds, but infinitely more the Savior did. How did He do it? How did Jesus do it? Here's how. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured even the cross, despising the shame. That is how He did it. It was the joy that was set before Him. He knew about the crowning day that was coming. He saw the harvest that he was going to reap, and seeing that, he was able not to see these other things, but to go through them gloriously and triumphantly. And you and I, listen, have the privilege of being like him. Did you catch that? Some of us are just getting through life, just barely keeping our head above water, surviving. And I would submit that that's no way to live the Christian life. Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly. He says in John 16.33 to be of good cheer, to cheer up, be encouraged. Why? Well, in this world you're going to have trials and tribulations and difficulties and pain and suffering, but Jesus has overcome the world triumphantly and gloriously, as Jones writes. And that is available to us. Nehemiah 8.11 says, The joy of the Lord is my strength. And you think about what Nehemiah did. Against all odds, I mean impossible odds, but God, but God, he never gave up. He kept pressing on, and that was his secret, and that was the Apostle Paul's secret. And moreover, and more importantly, that was the Savior's secret, and that can be ours as well. Thanks for listening today to In Spirit and Truth. We hope Pastor J.D. Farag's message from the book of 2 Corinthians has blessed you and that you continue to seek God's hand in your life. If you'd like to hear more messages from Pastor J.D., simply visit our website at inspiritandtruthradio.com and click on Listen at the top of the page. You'll also find a link to subscribe to our podcast or you can download messages to share with your family and friends. Did you know you can also take In Spirit and Truth with you wherever you go? It's true. Using your Apple or Android smartphone, download our mobile app and have biblically sound messages available right at your fingertips. Links to the app are right on our website, inspiritandtruthradio.com. 
We'd also like to encourage you to find and join a local church community if you haven't already. Having a group of believers to support you and learn from God with you is a great encouragement. You too will have the chance to bless others with your own unique gifts and talents. If you're in the Kaneohe area, we would joyfully welcome you into our fellowship here at Calvary Chapel Kaneohe. Our weekly services focus on studying God's Word and worshiping our Creator. Service times and directions can be found by going to InSpiritAndTruthRadio.com and clicking on Calvary Chapel Kaneohe at the bottom of the page. That's all we have for you today here on In Spirit and Truth. Be sure to join us again as Pastor J.D. digs deeper into the book of 2 Corinthians. Holy me true to 